My name is Andrew, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. For those that are new or visiting for the first time, my name is Jan, one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, we're very uh, welcoming, or we're very glad that you're here today. Um, now, I, I, I was watching a, um, a TikTok video uh, cooking a recipe, and um, you know, I was just watching it because TikTok, by the way, has the best recipes, okay, and it's very easy to follow. But the person was like, oh, now, now get this purple onion, and you know, and I was like, and I was like, purple onion? I was like, who calls it a purple onion? It's a red onion, right? And then, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, wait a second, it is purple. Why do we call it a red onion? You know, have, you guys, have you guys ever thought about that? Like, it doesn't look red at all. It looks very purple, right? And I was like, more people need to be talking about the purple onion and wh why it should be called the purple onion, not the red onion, and watch this transition. In that same way, we should be talking more about the fact about how the pandemic has really affected a lot of our social skills, and we have not talked about it. You know, um, now there's an article, come on, you guys didn't like that? No? 
I was like rehearsing that in my head for a while. Okay. Well, uh, Pastor Eugene sent me this article by, in the uh, Atlantic uh, by Arthur Brooks called How We Learn to Be Lonely. And um, this author, he really talks about the fact that uh, isolation and social distancing has normalized uh, what he calls the habitual state of loneliness and how we are having a very difficult time coming out of it. And I think this needs to be talked about more. Uh, just really the impact of, of uh, the pandemic and isolation in the last two and a half, three years, and it's really had a tremendous effect on many of us. Uh, and maybe we have not yet really thought about it. Uh, but anyways, this article uh, mentions just how oftentimes tragic events in, in human history and, and, event, uh, and throughout nations uh, really has an ability to bring people together. Now, some of you guys um, may not be old enough to remember the events of 9-11, but um, when 9-11 occurred, um, it really brought the nation of the United States together. Everyone was really unified. I remember driving around and people would be on the street corners selling American flags and people would buy them and they'd wave it around and they'd put it on their cars. And uh, 2001 is the year that I got my citizenship. So I had to go, you know, go into this big, big area with all these other naturalized citizens and, and we watched the video. Uh, it was like a montage of like, you know, the waves in California and then the, you know, uh, the what's Liber Statue of Liberty and the song in the background was like, and I want to be an American. You know, I, I don't know if you guys know that song, but then they all handed out flags and, and I was like so proud. I was waving in. I was like high-fiving people and like hugging people and I, I kind of had a tear and people were kind of crying. It, it just, and because, you know, 9-11 happened and like it, it really brought people together and, and just even like natural disasters, uh, the tsunami in Thailand or, or earthquakes in Japan, it, it, those natural disasters oftentimes has a response from the people of coming together and being united with the purpose of moving forward and past uh, some of the difficult tragedies that occur. Now, opposite of that, uh, the pandemic has really not seen that. We have not seen that because of the pandemic. In, in reality, it might have even divided us even more. And the author talks about the fact that this isolation and, and the fact that we are distancing ourselves from one another is really part of the reason why this is occurring. Now, the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, did a survey and found that 59% of those in the survey responded that they have not yet returned to pre-pandemic activities. And uh, many of which have cut out socializing, not with only with acquaintances and coworkers, but also with friends and family. And of the 30 and 35% of those that have responded stated that they have no desire to go back to the way things used to be pre-pandemic. And studies have shown that due to the isolation uh, that many people have, um, you know, there's an uptick in loneliness, there's an uptick in depression, anxiety, uh, that there's a higher rates of cardiovascular disease, uh, sleep deprivation, and mortality rates. And even especially for young children that were either born right before the pandemic or during the pandemic, there's been seen a lot of developmental delays because of the fact that they have had little to no interactions with the normal amount of people that they should have. Now, of the groups that were most affected by this isolation are singles uh, and also those that do not participate in religious activities. And the author claimed that the reason why is because within people that are uh, participating in religious activities, that within it, that there are programmed with, uh, you know, in intentional socializing between people. Uh, that there's programmed interactions with people and programmed interactions with, um, you know, just people outside of yourself. And because of this, I realized the, the pandemic has really affected um, three main relationships and the, the most important relationships in our lives. It's affected our relationship with God, it's affected our relationship with others, and it's also affected our relationship with, our, with ourselves. 
And as we continue on in our vision series, and as we really talk about just the, the, the presence and the formation and, and the uh, mission that we want to reiterate within the ch- uh, vision of our church, uh, I really believe that it's going to be very important for us to talk about um, how we as a people, how we as a community need to consider um, how the pandemic has really thwarted um, there's just the course of, of our lives. It has affected our relationships with God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with ourselves. And today, we're going to focus really on one of those circles, which is the presence circle. And we're going to talk about how the isolation and how really we need to recapture the, the relationship that we should have with God as we enter into his presence. So today, as we read, read this passage, we're going to talk about the power of God's presence Then we're going to talk about the futility of our idols. And lastly, we're going to talk about the grace of God's presence. So the first point is this, the power of God's presence. Now, um, this is a very interesting passage that we read. You know, I I love this story. And um, I was like, House of Dagon, it kind of sounds like House of Dragons, but it's not. It's House of Dagon, right? Um, I'm just going to give you guys a little context of what's going on. We're kind of right in the middle of this story of what's happening. Basically, we remember, um, if you guys know, the Israelites have left the land of Egypt. They are wandering in the wilderness. They, are, they have entered into the promised land of Canaan, and yet um, there are other inhabitants of that land. So what God has called them to do is to take, take possession of this land, uh, and you know, they're not going to just come be like, hey, my God told me this land is ours, you know, but there's going to be a battle with the people that are already inhabiting it. And part of the people, and, and what is happening is they're now fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are a coastal people. They are, uh, you know, a, a powerful nation. And the people of Israel are, uh, you know, somewhat of a young, young nation. And now they are in, in, in war with them. Now, they had gone into battle. 3,000 Israelites are struck dead. And because of this, they decide, you know, we call upon the elders. We need our special weapon. We need the Ark of the Covenant. If you guys have ever watched Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, they get that from the Bible, that story from the Bible. Now, it's not identical and it's not biblical, but the, you know, the theme of the story is from the Bible. Uh, basically, for the people of Israel, they believe that having the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in their midst in battle meant that God would miraculously give them victory in, very, in supernatural ways. So because they have just been defeated and 3,000 of their men have been slaughtered, they call upon the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it into the camp of the Israelites. And because of this, when they see the Ark of the Covenant entering into their camp, they are filled with joy and pride and they start screaming. They're like, ah! And the Philistines on the other side of the battlefield, they hear this screaming and shouts of the Israelites and they go, what's going on? And they see that the Ark of the Covenant has entered into the camp and now they are struck with fear. In 1 Samuel 4, 8 through 9, this is what they say. It says, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. See, for the people of the Philistines, they have heard the stories of the God of Israel, that he is powerful, that he struck down the Egyptians, who, by the way, were the most powerful nation at the time. They heard the stories of the plagues and how the Red Sea came and, 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 and just drowned the entire army and the chariots of the Egyptians. And so now they are filled with fear. But they still go into battle. And what happens? The biggest upset in history. The Philistines beat the Israelites. It says that 30,000 Israelites were struck down. So the rest of the Israelites, they run back to their home. They, they retreat. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, 
they bring it back into their hometown, into their city of Ashdod, and they place it before their god, Dagon, in the temple of Dagon. And this is where things get interesting. Now, after they wake up in the morning, they arise and they see that Dagon is now face down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you have to imagine what this idol could look like. I mean, it, the, the Bible doesn't describe the size and the weight of this thing, uh, but it, it's, it's not like the little Buddha scrap, uh, you know, statues that you see at like um, Vietnamese restaurants. It's not like a little, little tiny thing. It's, it's a big idol, okay? And by itself, it had fallen down on the ground. Now, the next day they wake up, uh, they put it back, the next day they wake up, and now Dagon is again face down, except it's only the torso. The hands and the head is cut off, and it's again before the Ark of the Covenant. And now the people are like, what's going on? Then all of a sudden, the city of Ashdod, they are struck with an affliction and calamity of tumors and death. And they get so freaked out by this that they send the Ark of the Covenant away to the neighboring city, to the other city of Gath. And the same thing happens in Gath. And the people in Gath are like, get this out of here. And they send it to Ekron. And the people of Ekron, they see the Ark of the Covenant coming into their town. And they're like, no way. Get that thing. Do not bring that here. You guys are sending it here to kill us. We need to call the elders of the Philistines. And we need to figure out how to get rid of this thing. Now, all this happened in the course of seven months. So for seven months, the Philistines having the Ark of the Covenant in their presence, in their midst, are now experiencing the absolute power of the God of the universe. Now, what, is, what does all this mean, right? What is happening here? See, in, in battle, when they captured the Ark of the Covenant and when they put it before you know, their God, Dagon, what they were signifying is that we have victory over your God. Therefore, our God is more powerful than yours. And by placing the Ark of the Covenant in the house of Dagon before the statue of Dagon, what they're saying is your God is subservient to ours. He serves our God because he is stronger, more powerful than yours. But what God displays is that there's no God in this universe more powerful than him, for he is the only God. So by his power, he places Dagon face forward to show that Dagon is before him, that Dagon is subservient to him. He cuts off his hands and his head to show that he is powerless, that there's nothing that this fake God can do. And then he afflicts the people to show them that their God cannot save them against his might and his power. And the Philistines are in absolute turmoil because of the affliction and the calamity that is before them. Now, what does this mean for us? I think when we read a passage like this, it might seem a little confusing, but I want us to get to the, the theme and, and the truth that God's word is communicating. And it's this, that the God of the universe, that the Lord of Lords, that he is the most powerful being in the universe. And when we come into his presence, and, and that's what we're doing on Sundays when we come corporately as a body into the presence uh, of God. It doesn't matter what building you're in or where, if you're coming together in worship in the presence of God, what you are coming into, what you are stepping into is a power unmatched by anything in this universe. When we are stepping into God's presence, what we are doing 
is that we are coming into something that is absolutely, you know, it should bring fear into us. Because God has every right to display his power in any way he pleases. But unfortunately, think about the attitudes in which we come into his presence. We come very flippantly. We come without really a thought and, 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 and uh, you know, just a preparation in the fact that we are coming into the very creator of all things. We assume that God is this, is this meek and, and powerless and just kind of this kind grandpa, but in reality, he is the most authoritative and, and, and all-inspiring being that we can ever imagine. Now, I think for many of us, um, and still some of us today, um, you know, now for those that are joining us online, you might have a good reason why you are joining us online. Um, but many of us, we, and even if you're here in person, you might even just be coming just out of habit or just because you want to uh, in like, without really thinking about it. But we have lost um, the attitude of understanding that coming into the presence of God is something very serious. Something that we should have a, a really a lot of thought in. And that when we do come into the presence of God, that he is able to manifest his power in very special and inspiring ways. Now, what does that actually look like? Now, don't get me wrong. God has every right and he has every ability and sometimes he does uh, manifest his presence in, in miraculous ways. Um, he does so, you know, throughout scripture. He does so even in this time today. There might be, uh, you know, healings or, or crazy events that occur. But I also believe that God is, uh, manifests his presence in ways that may seem mundane, but when we really think about it, it's absolutely powerful. If I look back in my life, and I think in hindsight of, of all the courses of, of, of big events or little events that occurred in my life, uh, I, I really see the fingerprints of God through it all. And if you are able to think and process about your life and just big moments or little moments or, or things that you remember, I guarantee you, you'll, you'll see the fingerprints of God in those moments. There are so many ways that God manifests his power in ways where sometimes we may not even think or acknowledge it. But he, he does. And it is this presence and this relationship and our response to that presence that is very important. That is something that we need to continually think about, continually talk about, and continually um, just really digest in order for us to have a relationship with him that he calls for. I believe in many ways, especially um, in our modern times, we minimize the power of God we don't really give credit to him for being the God of the universe. We assume that he is just, we don't even imagine what he is. But when we read a passage like this, I believe we have to really recapture this understanding and the truth that he is very powerful. That there's nothing that can defeat him. That there's nothing that even comes close to him. Now the second point is this that when we come into the presence of God, he reveals the futility of our idols. And, and, and this is the case that I'm gonna make, why it is very important for us to come um, physically in person 
in corporate worship together as a community and as a body. Now, if you are a believer, this is absolutely very important. If you're still not sure exactly what you believe, uh, this is a great opportunity to just witness what actually occurs and maybe even think about and consider why we would come together every Sunday to worship God. Uh, Number one, uh, when we look at the Philistines, we see for them their victory against the Israelites um, gave, gave them a false sense of power and control. Right? They placed their faith in their God, that their God was more powerful. But what does God do? He exposes the powerlessness of their idol. He exposes that Dagon is nothing more than a statue. That Dagon has no power over the true God of Yahweh. Right? Uh, it, the Philistines, they bring the ark. And when they bring the ark before Dagon, Again, they're saying, your God, the God of Israel, serves our God. Your God, Yahweh, serves Dagon. And that's why they place the ark before Dagon. And what does God do? He cuts him down. Finds the idol prostrate before him. For no God is above Yahweh. That there's no idol more stronger or powerful than God himself. Now, of, of course, we are not in a situation, and a lot of us, we do not bow down to a physical idol, right? Uh, we don't, you know, worship like a physical statue, uh, but what we do is we do have a lot of idols in our lives, things that we think are going to give us hope, things that we believe that if we can only just have that, then we'll be okay. That's what an idol is, something that we place our hope in. And every time we come into God's presence, what he is doing is showing the powerlessness of the very things that we place our hope in before God. Now, one of the things that I think um, is very prevalent is what are, what are some of the things that we want God to help in our lives? You know, what are the things that we hope that God will serve for us? Just as the, the Philistines were hoping that God would, would serve their god Dagon by placing him before Dagon, I believe many of us, we have this understanding or with this idea that God will serve our needs. And those needs and desires are the very things that we are idolizing. Now, um, many years ago, I was a children's pastor at a church. And um, as a children's pastor, you, you, know, you meet the children, you kind of know the children, you know their parents. Now, once a year, a week before school started, we had a special morning prayer week where from Monday through Sunday, you come like at six in the morning um, to have like a morning prayer service. This was the highest attended morning prayer services every year. And I would see students that I've never seen before in my life. I would see parents, I was like, who are you, right? And the reason why, and here's the thing, the church, the purpose was, hey, let's come together so that we can dedicate our families and our students to serving God. But the opposite happens. The parents come because they wanted God to serve their kids and their idols, hoping that if we come to this morning service, that our kids will do well in school, that they will succeed. And and I'm not innocent of this either. You know how many times I did my devotionals every morning right before a big final during college? You know, do you know how many times before like, uh, you know, like when there's a job interview or something that you really want, like how many of us go, oh, you know what, I'm going to pray more this week. You know, like what are we doing? We're hoping that God would serve our idol, right? 
that somehow that he would be used, just like the Israelites thought that they could use the ark to, you know, win their battle for them, we think that we can just come to church with the hopes that as long as we come and act holy and follow some of these rules, that God will give us a good life, that he will give us success in our studies, that he will give us success in our careers, that he will make that girl like us back, you know, or there's, there's so many different services and things that we are hoping for. And what God does as we enter into his presence and as his presence is with us, is he reveals the futility of those very things that we are placing our hope in. Because how many times did you actually get what you wanted and you realize that wasn't all that great? How many times did you actually get a good grade when you may, maybe not, should have not gotten a, a good grade? And then what happens next? There's another test. How many times did you actually start dating the person that you were wanting to date and you realize, wait a second, this person sucks? Right? How many times did you finally get that job that you thought would solve all your problems and you're like, wait a second, I don't like this job. I don't even like this profession. God exposes that. He exposes it as he reveals that he's the only one deserving of worship. He's the only one that can actually give us the thing that we are hoping for in life, which is him. So there are many ways and, and that God exposes the futility and the powerlessness of our idols, right? Uh, this is not an absolute list, but these are general observations uh, from the text that, and, and even from personal experience on how I believe God exposes our idols. Um, number one, the Philistines, they brought Dagon, or they brought the Ark of the Covenant and placed it before Dagon. The image or the metaphor was that God of Israel was now in service to Dagon. When we come to the presence of God in worship, oftentimes we come with the hopes that by coming, he will somehow grant our wishes, that somehow that we can manipulate and bend the will of God towards what we really want and desire. And I believe a lot of times we do this without even realizing what we're actually doing is we're placing God in service to our idols. What else? I, I believe the question is, is um, the presence of calamity in our lives and affliction in our lives actually points us to the things that we are idolizing. For the people of the Philistines, um, they were afflicted with tumors and they were afflicted with death. And what do they do? They turn to their gods. They turn to their elders. They said, do something about it. And here's the thing, like, they understood that perhaps, you know, they were thinking perhaps the reason why we're getting all these tumors and the reason why we're being afflicted and the reason why some people are dying is because the God of Yahweh, I mean, uh, God of Israel is in our midst. The Ark of the Covenant is here. They understood that. And yet, instead of going to God and saying, we repent, maybe we should start acknowledging that you are the God of the universe, who do they run to? They ran to the security of their city. They ran to the security of their religious infrastructure. They ran to the security of their religious elders and said, do something about it. Do something about it. And I think in many ways, oftentimes, when, the, when there is calamity and affliction in our lives, who we turn to describes and shows us who our idols are. 
when some things are not going right in your life, when things are going terribly wrong, what often happens when, when God is not the main source of your worship is that you turn away from him. You want him out of your life. Say, if you're going to do this to me, then why should I worship you? Right? And, and that's what the Philistines were doing. They're saying, get the ark out of here. We no longer want this in our presence because he is the reason why we are being afflicted. But I believe that even in the worst times, and I don't say this um, you know, and make it sound trivial, even in, in the most difficult moments of our lives, what God is trying to do is she's trying to turn our attention to him to show us that he is the one who is present. He is the one that is in control. He is the one that is absolutely powerful, that we must turn to him. Lastly, and this is something that um, you know, I think about often, but uh, you know, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he says this, the things that we daydream about exposes our idols. And I believe this is a very practical reason why we should come to church, why we should gather corporately together in worship. Because when we come here, it's not culturally acceptable for us to be distracted by our phones, right? So what ends up happening is we daydream. Some of you are daydreaming right now, and it's okay, because I believe God uses this daydreaming to expose what we're actually idolizing. And I'm not, I'm not innocent of this either. If, if I was in your position, I'd be daydreaming right now too. I'd be like, oh man, like I wish the Lakers would make an awesome trade, you know, like... I wish, you know, like the Lakers would win the championship. Um, what would I do with 1.35 billion, make a million, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'll do this, I'll do this. I'd be like, oh, no, no, don't, you can't be thinking about that. No, no, you, it's okay. He's exposing what you're actually idolizing. Like, oh, man, what should I eat for lunch? You know, like you're, you're idolizing your own flesh. Oh, man, I, I wish, you know, the things work out at work. Yeah, you're, you're idolizing your career. Oh, man, look at him. Who's that guy? He's dressed nice. Oh, you're, you're idolizing you know, your relationships. God uses this time where you have to sit, not be on your screens, and to just be with yourself and, and, and God, and he's exposing the actual desires that you have in your heart. For those online, you're even more distracted because you're at home and you're like, yeah, should I watch this or should I watch this? I, I, I can actually be on my phone, you know? And, and those are the expo uh, exposing elements of what you actually idolize. And he wants to do so because he wants to sanctify his body, his people, to show that he is the only one that deserves attention, adoration, and glory. You shall have no other gods before me. Lastly, the presence of God also communicates his grace. Um, the message is not all doom and gloom because I believe God is gracious and he is merciful. And what we see from this passage is really God communicating his grace to the people of Israel. Because okay. what is the difference between the Philistines and the Israelites? Nothing much. What do the Philistines do? They placed the Ark of the Covenant before their God to see if the Ark of the Covenant could serve Dagon. What did the Israelites do? They brought upon the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, hoping that the Ark of the Covenant or God would serve their purpose of victory. Same thing, right? Were the people of Israel not idol worshipers? They were. They were idol worshipers. 
Samuel 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel, who is the prophet of God at this moment in the time of Israel, he says this to the people of Israel as the ark returns back to the people of Israel. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The people of Israel are also idol worshipers. They also bow down and worship other gods. And what ends up happening is that God and the Ark of the Covenant return to the people of Israel. Now, how did this happen? The Philistines are like, we got to get this thing out of here. For seven months, they're being afflicted. And the elders of the religious people of the Philistines, they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Put the Ark of the Covenant in a wagon, hitch him to two milk cows, um, but don't send it back empty-handed. We got to give an offering. So um, put um, offerings of golden tumors. I, how do you, what, do you, what does a tumor even look like? Just like little balls of gold, you know? Um, they could have just found gold and said, oh, that's a tumor. I don't know, but they shaped it like a tumor. They put golden mice in there, and they said, if these milk cows return back to Israel, then we know that everything was happening because of the power of God. But if they do not return to Israel, then it was all just a coincidence. Uh, and the reason why this is significant is because milk cows, I'm not a farmer, milk cows are not plowing cows. They don't drag anything. They stand and then they produce milk. Okay? But they watched and these milk cows went along the road and returned back to the people of Israel. Now, you would think, oh, that's awesome, end of the story and then credits roll. No, that's not what happened. Okay? The people of Israel, they see the ark um, and they inappropriately touch the ark, right? Because coming to the presence of God is a serious matter. And guess what happens to the people that inappropriately touch the ark? You know, because like, if I'm, if I'm like an Israelite, I'm like, oh man, the ark of the covenant is gone. Oh no. And they're like, oh, wait a second. What are these milk cows coming? Oh, is that what I think it is? It's the ark of the covenant. Yay, let's go get it and take it to the people. And, and you touch it and they, they died. They basically died, right? And you're like, what the heck? God is crazy, right? Uh, and, and because when you come into the presence of God, even when he is the one going to you, and you don't have the proper mediator to be in his presence, guess what's going to happen to you? You will be struck down. Because the holiness of God is too great for just regular people like us. Because we are unholy by nature. And this is again seen in the very reason or the very way the people of Israel are treated coming into the presence of God. Later on in the tabernacle and later on when they built the temple, the Ark of the Covenant will be placed in the most holy place. There's a room, the holy place, and a room within the room called the most holy place. And only once a year was the great high priest allowed to enter into that room. And the only way that the great high priest would be able to enter into this room is that they would have to offer a sacrifice for all of his sins, known and unknown. And then if he is worthy and has come with the right heart and, and confession, then he would be able to enter into the, uh, the most holy place where he would offer a sacrifice on top of the Ark of the Covenant to signify that the sins of the people of Israel have been paid for. Now, if this great high priest entered into the most holy place with, uh, without the proper protocol, he would be struck dead. So they would tie a bell around his ankle so that if they no longer hear the bell, and, and they would pull a rope and bring his dead body out. Okay? That's how incredible it is to come into the presence of God. 
Now, the reason why they would offer a sacrifice on top of the Ark of the Covenant is because on top of the Ark of the Covenant is called something called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat are two angels and their wings are pointed forward. And the, and the thought and the metaphor is that the very presence of God is looking down upon the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what's inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments. And as you look down upon the Ten Commandments, what he's looking at is all the sins and all the things that the people of God are in disobedience to. But once the blood is poured out on top of the mercy seat, he no longer sees the disobedience of the sin of the people, but he sees the blood that says that their sins have been paid for. So how does God's presence um, signify grace? We are in the presence of God right now. He says, where two or three are more gathered, I will be in the midst of you. The reason why we are not struck dead is because by God's grace, he provided the ultimate sacrifice, his very son, in which his blood covers the mercy seat of our hearts. That by doing so, when he looks down upon us, he no longer sees all the sins and the disobedience of our lives, but he sees that our sins have been paid for by his son as he hung upon the cross. And the very fact that Jesus would come down into this earth and be called Emmanuel, God with us, shows and is evidence of God's grace. And for those that place their faith in him, he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And for those that place our faith in Christ, we are also given the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, that God is actually in us. And it is this message and it is this grace in which we come into God's presence to worship. And that is the most gracious message that I can think of. So the hope moving forward if I can just give one practical application, is this. We come into his presence, not out of habit, not because we think that he is going to serve our needs, but we come into his presence to worship. And for those that are around us that may not have this relationship with God, that may not still understand the gospel, that when they see us come in that mode of adoration and attitude, that they would question and wonder, what is it that allows these people to worship so fervently and so passionately? May the presence of God be the very reason that we come to church. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask um, that you would help us to really have an attitude of adoration and worship, knowing, Lord, that your presence in our lives has so many benefits, that it exposes the idols in our lives, that it shows us your power, and most importantly, that it communicates to us your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we gather today, uh, may that presence be made known to us. May we experience it May we realize it, and may we be filled with adoration because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.